Um, Philippians chapter 4. Uh, this was going to be our last study, but <laughs> we may have one more thing here, a couple more here, um, just given to the time. But uh, this morning, um, as we turn to Philippians 4, we've been looking through verses uh, 1 through 9, basically. And, uh, and the Apostle Paul uh, wrote to the church at Corinth, Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Um, and he was calling them to spiritual stability. Uh, when James wrote that a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, that too was a call for spiritual stability in your life. When the Apostle John wrote that there's no greater joy than this, than to have hear that his children walked in the truth, that speaks of spiritual stability. And it's a, it's a theme throughout the New Testament. And yet a lot of times in our Christian lives and everything, we're anything but stable. Um, and so over and over again, Christians are called to be faithful, they're called to be consistent, they're called to stableness, strength, boldness in their Christian walk, courageous, unwavering, undaunting in the, the world in which we live, which is a very formidable task if you think about it. There's persecution, there's hostilities toward Christ, there's rejection, there's testings, trials, all sorts of things all around us. And no one likes to be defeated. I've never met somebody who says, I just can't wait to lose. I mean, I just can't. Even, even somebody, a, game, a team like the 49ers, okay, I mean, at the end of their season, I'm going, just lose the game so you get a better draft choice. But, you know, it's, they, they can't do that because they're, they're born to win. They compete to win. They don't compete to, to lose. And none of us as Christians want to be a failure at what Christ has called us to. No one likes being defeated. No one likes being a loser. We want to be triumphant. We want to be victorious. And we look at somebody like Paul as almost a model. How can we hold our ground like you did, Paul? How can we not become a, a loser? And how can we be, remain a winner, not become defeated, but become triumphant in all that we're doing? Um, how can we not be depressed, but be joyful? You know, life is basically a bunch of, uh, it's kind of like being in an ocean. And it's waves. And sometimes the waves come in a steady flow, one after another. And sometimes the waves come from different angles. I remember one time we were in Hawaii, and uh, uh, on our, I think it was on our honeymoon. It wasn't our honeymoon. And um, there was this black beach, and the, you know, I thought, oh, come on, we're going to go swimming. And my wife doesn't really like the water that much. Oh, just hold on to my hand. And we kind of, you know, she was kind of scared. But we got down there near the waves. Well, I totally misjudged these waves. I mean, the first, you know, the first wave, it wiped us both out, you know. It took me some time to recover, so my, my newlywed bride's tumbling around in the sand, you know. She was not too pleased. But, you know, if I could judge it right, that's fine. But life isn't like that, is it? Life is kind of like, you know, you don't know what's going to hit you, when it's going to hit you. I started out this past week thinking, okay, great, got a week ahead of us and got to catch up on some stuff because I was gone last week. Well, boom, Tuesday hits, Rich Cameron dies, and the whole, the whole, the whole week is turned around. And it's just, I, I echo the sentiments of John, just uh, the family was very touched by the way our church ministers not only to, to uh, Noni, but to Rich. And uh, it was just a, a wonderful uh, celebration time together. And, uh, you know, the Word of God was, was um, hopefully shared in a way that, that would touch people's hearts. Um, 
But we don't know what life is going to bring us. And back in verse 1 of Philippians 4, he says, you know what, you have to stand firm no matter what. And he kind of takes us through these. He says, first of all, you have to have a fellowship of peace. And uh, secondly, in verse 4 there, he says, you know what, you also have to maintain a spirit of joy. And I'm reviewing these because we've gone over these in depth. Uh, the third principle there is that you have to accept less than what you deserve. Less than what you deserve. If you do that, then your, your standards are never too, you know, if you, you're never going to be uh, kind of depressed about things because you're always going to figure you're getting more than what you deserve. Um, in verse 5 and 6, it says basically that we have to have this confident trust in the Lord, that we have to have a, uh, a confident rest in the Lord because why? He's near, not in time, but in space. He's near to us. And so he says in verse 6, be anxious for nothing. In other words, what are you worried about? The Lord's with you. The Lord is here. And when you have that kind of trust and, and faith in the Lord, it brings about that. The fifth principle we looked at last two weeks ago was that um, we have to react to our problems with thankful prayer. And so the fifth one, you might just sum it up as gratitude, being grateful. You show me a person who has peace and, and that peace that the Spirit of God produces and all of a sudden you're going to have joy. You'll see a person who's humble. You'll see a person who believes um, truly in God and, and uh, is thankful for everything, irregardless. And sometimes that's not easy. Because sometimes life dishes out some hard things for us to deal with. After the service on Friday, I heard all these sirens, and I thought, well, I better go check this out. And there's a fire down here on Oak and... Um, King Street, I think it was, and uh, they poured the, pulled this poor woman out of the, her house. She probably had second, third degree burns all over her body. And um, you know, it was not a good situation. Some of the guys that pulled her out, and as a chaplain, I just went down to see if I could help or whatever, and the police said, we might want to talk to some of these people. They kind of pulled this, this lady out of there. And the, the one guy couldn't understand why everybody was just standing around watching this lady burn in her doorway. Nobody would help her. But, I mean, the flames were beyond, you know, and so he and a couple other guys got a hose, and, and two of them actually went in and, and uh, grabbed her and pulled this, this woman out. Um, but you don't know what life is going to throw at you. You just don't know. And, you know what, even in the, the, the hardest of times, um, I think a true believer can, in their heart, well up with thanks, knowing that they're in the hand of God. You remember Jonah. Um, you know, just an amazing uh, portion of Scripture in the Old Testament and, and how he, you know, through all that he went through, he continued, continued to trust in God. Um, I mean, you think about it. You know, you're, you're in the belly of a whale. I mean, that's not a good place to be. Um... Somebody saw a cartoon one time, I read this, and they said there was two penguins, and they were just both standing there. And one was like three-quarters of the way into a fish's mouth. And the other penguin said, just remember, God's in control. <laughs> you know, life is that way sometimes. We feel like we're being eaten alive by things, and we have to go back, and we have to remember, you know what? God is in control. And in Jonah chapter 2, he says, then the, it says, and Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the stomach 
of the fish. Now, if I was in the fish of the stomach, I don't know if I would be praying. I don't know if I don't know what kind of prayer I would be praying. It'd be probably like a prayer, like, "What are you doing, God? Why am I down here? Where are you? I'm not supposed to be in this kind of a situation." But that was not Jonah's approach. In chapter two, verse two, he says this. He's kind of floating around there in the gastric juices of this whale. Get you all ready for lunch, you know. He says in chapter or verse 2, he says, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depths of Sheol. Thou didst hear my voice. Thou hast cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me, and all the breakers and billows passed over me. I mean, he's sinking in the sea. This is his picture. So I said, here's what he said, I have been expelled from thy sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward thy holy temple. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm so far down here, God, I don't even think you know where I'm at. I don't think you can find me. He says, I will look again toward thy holy temple. Water compassed uh, me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But thou hast brought my life from the pit, O Lord. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to thee in thy holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. But I will sacrifice to thee with a voice of thanksgiving. I mean, this guy's going down with the whale, and he's still thanking God in prayer. And that's... One prayer probably that fish didn't want to hear because he threw up <laughs> Jonah onto the shore, as, as the story goes. And he says in the end, you know what? Salvation is from the Lord. God gets all the glory. Now, here in Philippians 4, that's, that's the kind of prayer he's talking about. And remember, we don't pray just, to get, pray just to get answers. That's the wrong motivation. We pray, first of all, because God commands us to pray. And as we pray... It should be with a heart of thanksgiving. And if God answers our prayer, hey, that's great. That's just kind of a icing on the cake. But we have to go with a heart of gratitude. And we have to remember that, that it's, it's so, I think, so important that, that, that we have those things in our life, a fellowship of peace, joy, humility, faith, gratitude. And today, I think, you know, as we kind of, Look at verse 8. There's another little step here, you might say, in understanding spiritual stability in our life. He says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, anything at all is what he's saying, then he says, meditate on these things. And basically, he's summing up everything, what he's been saying with this one phrase. It kind of indicate, indicates this is the, the climax of his, his little portion here of Scripture. He's summing up everything. All these elements that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks can be summed up with his closing remarks here. And in verse 8, he says, let your mind meditate or dwell on these things. And the one thing I want you to understand here this morning is that 
Another aspect of spiritual stability, another step to having spiritual stability in your life is to stop and realize, you know what? It's a result of how you think. It's a result of how you think. And we're not talking some pop psychology, you know, positive thinking, you know, uh, the guy with the glass church. We're not talking there, okay? We're not going there. But it is a, a matter of how you think. See, modern psychology today has a corner on supposedly helping people in certain ways who want to be stable. And if you want to get your act together, if you want to be delivered from your schizophrenia or your nervous neurosis or whatever you have, um, if you want to be calm and comfortable, a stable person, then basically uh, one of the things you need to do is they call you together and you need to look into your past. And they take you into your past. And you need to give all this stuff kind of a dredge and you need to go through it and kind of drag up all this scum from your past, whatever kind of past you had. And then you need to kind of put it all in a big trash bin and then you dive into that trash and just kind of wallow around in there in a couple of weeks and they say that eventually you'll figure things out and come out uh, from the garbage of your life and be a better person as a result of it. You know, I don't find that in Scripture. I'm sorry. I don't find that in Scripture. Sometimes they even, if you go to the certain <laughs> um, psychiatrist, who's into primal uh, therapy techniques, they have you huddle with a pillow on the floor, kind of in a uh, fetal position, put pillows all around you, and you're supposed to feel the pain of your pre-birth experience as you came out of the womb and all this stuff. I don't know about you, but that's, that's not something you know, I want to experience. You know, I thank God I remember, I don't remember the day I was born. I mean, can you imagine that? And you know what? It's even spilled over into Christianity. And see, in the light of verse 8, it seems totally the opposite. They're telling you to do totally the opposite from what the Word says. The Word says, I want you to focus your attention. I want you to meditate. Completely focus on these things. What is true? What is honorable? What is right? What is pure? What is lovely? What is of good repute? Good report. See, the focus of the Christian is away from those things which is, it's a shame to speak of because they're things of the darkness. As Paul calls them in Ephesians chapter 5. And so Paul wants to sum up here and he says, you know what, if you want to sum it up in one thing, let your mind meditate on these things. Let your mind dwell on these things. He calls for right thinking. And I want you to understand that word there because it's an imperative, which means it's a command. This isn't something that you can just casually do in your Christian walk. You're commanded to do this. And it doesn't mean just to think in the simple one-dimensional sense of things. It means to evaluate something. It means to kind of assert, it means to use all your faculties to consider the validity and the implications of these things. In other words, develop the right thinking habits for your life. This seems kind of obvious, but you know what? You as a believer are a product of your thinking. It says that very clearly in the Bible. 
As a man thinks in his heart, what? So he is. You're a product of your thoughts. The computer world, the geeks in our society have a word. It's either Geigo or Gigo, garbage in, garbage out. Right? What you put in your computer is what you're going to get out. Nothing more, nothing less. Whatever you program is exactly what you're going to get for the most part. <laughs> Some of you say, yeah, right. <laughs> you don't know my computer, but it's got a mind of its own. But um, most of computers are just, that's the way it works. You're a product of your thinking. Now, that's kind of frightening in the society in which we live today because our thinking is, is bombarded on every side. And you know what? It's, it's not so much that important what we're thinking about. Um, we're not so concerned about thinking as we are about two other things. Emotions, that's a big one, and pragmatism. We're concerned about feeling and we're concerned about success. It doesn't matter how you do it, but you've got to succeed. That's, that's the bottom line. But see, people don't stop and ask the question, is it right? Is this the right thing to do? They say, well, you know, is it going to work? See, that's the wrong question. As a Christian, the question to ask is, is this the right thing to do in view of Scripture, in view of God, in view of His holiness? They don't want to know whether it's right. They don't care. They just want to know whether it works or whether it makes them feel good. See, we're, we're kind of into a feeling culture today. It's all about what you feel. And you know what? Even in the world of theology, that is true. I've had people tell me so many, so many times. You know, they're, they're, they're talking about their experience. They're talking about this emotion that they felt or whatever. They're like, you know, I want to say, I don't care. Does it line up with Scripture or does it not line up with Scripture? You know, if your experience lines up with Scripture, then hey, great. If it doesn't, if you're coming to me, yeah, you know, you know, last, last week I was shaving and, and all of a sudden, you know, the spirit fell on me and I started to quack like a duck right there in front of the mirror. It was a wonderful experience. I mean, you laugh. But this kind of nuttiness is going on all over the church. And people are saying, well, it happened. You know, I experienced, so what? There's no, nowhere in Scripture where you can talk about barking like a dog or quacking like a duck or anything like that. And yet, those experiences, because they have them, they don't care whether they're right or wrong. They just know that they had them. That's what they felt. And see, we have to be very careful. We have to be critical in our thinking when it comes to these kind of things. See, we live in a culture that is fast learning not to think because it's fast learning not to read. See, today's culture believes that you can plant your kid in front of the TV and he'll learn things. Let me share with you, parents here today, a little some, something from someone who's an expert in this field. He's a professor at Stanford University, and he's contributed to uh, several books or whatever in, on education and, and communication. And uh, his name is Paul Robinson. In this article, he wrote this, TV Can't Educate. And what he does is, through the article, he, he's coming from a secular point of view totally. 
But he says that in the thinking process, the only way to learn is by reading. It's the only way to learn because words on a page freeze a thought. You can analyze it. You can synthesize it. You can verify it. You can meditate on it. Pictures don't create a thought. What do pictures create? An emotion. He goes on to point out the fact that the worst possible TV, this is what he says, is educational TV. Because it's a contradiction in terms, because he says TV can't educate. He says this, you would be better off never to have educational TV, because at least in your mind, there would be a vacuum that someday, someday, might be filled with real thought. We have a society that doesn't think. We're not into what is true or what is right. We don't care. It's how does it make me feel? Does it work for me? And that's a very scary place to be in in our society. See, the Christian must not be a victim of his feelings, but we are all the time. We shouldn't get caught in the, the trap of pragmatism that, hey, if it works, then I guess it, it's okay. John Stott, in one of his books called Your Mind Matters, says this, Indeed, sin has more dangerous effects on our faculty of feeling than our faculty of thinking, because our opinions are more easily checked and regulated by revealed truth than our experiences. It's just an incredible amount of data that supports this. And there's some people that believe, well, you know, we're just kind of evolved, you know, we're like Pavlov's dogs, you know, that kind of thing. Well, I don't find that in Scripture. I mean, I think that there's even a theology of thinking, the way we should think. Do you remember in Isaiah 1.18, what did God say? Come now, let us what? Let us reason. Let us reason together. What does that mean? That means sitting down thinking something through. Now, he didn't say, come now, let us feel together. He didn't even say, come now, let us experience one another together. He said, let's think it through. In Matthew chapter 18, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to Jesus and they said, you know what? We want to see a sign. We want you to show us a sign. Do something spectacular that will overwhelm us. And here's what Jesus said. He said, well, you can look at the sky and tell what the weather's like. Why can't you look at the revelation of God and figure it out? What's Jesus saying? In other words, I'm not going to give you some spectacular show in the sky. I'm going to ask you to consider the facts that you've already been given. And so many times that's what we're waiting for, some big fantastic experience. And God is saying, I've given you everything I'm going to give you. What are you doing with it? Jesus goes on even furthermore, and he says, even though someone is raised from the dead, they won't believe. He says, if they didn't believe Moses and the prophets, why would they believe this? The Bible always calls men to think, to reason. You know, that's why the Bible's a book. It's a, it's a collection of, of, of writings. You know, when, when, when God gave us his word, he didn't give us... His word on a DVD. There's a reason for that. He didn't give it to us on a video. He didn't give it to us on an audio tape. 
There's nothing really to touch your emotions except the truth of God's Word when you open it. And that's why they should be a first priority. In Psalm 32, 9, verse 8 actually, he says, I will instruct you, says God. I will teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. In other words, I'm going to give you truth. I'm going to give you instruction. I'm going to give you all the teaching you need, all the counsel. And verse 9 says, Do not be as the horse or the mule, which has no understanding. Think. Psalm 73, 22. The psalmist says, I was senseless and ignorant. <laughs> I was like a beast. And what God is telling us, don't be like that. We need to think. Careful thinking is the distinctive of our revealed faith. When, when God reveals Himself to us, we need to process that. It's not just purely an emotional thing. Look at the theology of how we think. Before salvation, I put them there in your outline, I think. Before we're even saved, do you understand your mind is depraved? Romans 1.28 says, as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a what? Depraved mind. Our minds were corrupt. They were depraved. Secondly, our minds are blind. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. The God of this world has what? Blinded the minds of the unbelieving. Our minds were blind. Thirdly, they're futile. They're vain. They're worthless. Useless. Ephesians 4.17 says, walk no longer as you used to walk, in the futility of your mind. Also, ignorance is a sign of an unsaved mind. Ephesians 4.18 says, The godly are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them. Our minds were ignorant before we came to Christ. And lastly, the foolish, 1 Corinthians 2.14, A man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for their foolishness to him, he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Our minds were foolish before we came to Christ. So you can say to an unbeliever, my friend, I don't know you real well, but I do know a few things that I'd like to share. I don't know what your IQ is. I don't know what your academic background is. But I want to tell you, your mind is, first of all, it's depraved. You're blind, futile, ignorant, and foolish. I won't win a lot of friends with that, but that's the truth. That's exactly right. So a deprived mind is not going to choose what is good. A blind mind doesn't know what is good. A useless uh, mind it can not perform what is good. An ignorant mind doesn't know what to do in any given situation. They're all foolishness. Well, what happens? The gospel penetrates our mind when we get saved what happens to us when we're saved the, the gospel is concerned about the mind remember in, in uh, first Peter chapter 3 where Peter says that you must be able to give an answer to every man who asks for the hope that lies within you so if you're a believer here your mind now you should be able to think you should be able to give that answer in Matthew chapter 17 Jesus said sometimes the seed falls verse 19 on the ground and the seed is the word of the kingdom and the hard ground is the heart that does not understand it. And Satan snatches it away. See, it demands reason. It demands understanding. 
You don't just go to sleep one night and wake up the next day a Christian not even knowing what, what was presented to you. In Romans chapter 10, it clearly says that faith comes by hearing a speech about Christ. Faith comes through the mind, through the reason. And so Isaiah says, come let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as wool. Though they're as red as crimson, they'll be as white as snow. See, the gospel hits the mind. That's what we need to be like. We need to be like those Bereans who are so noble. The Bible says that they searched the scriptures to make sure that what was said was correct. Don't just take somebody's word for it. You'll get into trouble real quick. Well, he calls us to meditate on these things. And you stop and you think of what we're called to meditate on. And he gives us a list here. First, he says, finally, brethren, whatever is what? True. Well, what is true? Well, the Word of God is true. We know that, John 17, 17, thy word is what? Truth. You can look at those other references. Also, there's truth in Christ. Ephesians 4.21 tells us that. There's truth in God. 2 Timothy 2.25 tells us that. So if you want to know truth, you want to go to the Word of God. It's the focus. It's the focus of all truth. See, there's not a lot of, you know, it's pretty, it's not rocket science here. You know, whatever is true. Well, true means true. Secondly, whatever is honorable. It means worthy of respect, dignified, whatever is reverent, whatever is lofty, not trashy or mundane or common. And that, that, that word really comes from a term meaning to worship. That's the origin of, uh, origin of that, that word. Whatever is worthy of all, you might say. Whatever is held in high regard. Well, well, well let's think on that. Let's meditate on that. Thirdly, whatever is right has the idea of something that's righteous. Whatever is in perfect harmony with the eternal, unchanging, divine standards of a holy God revealed in Scripture. Well, we want to think on that. I'm going to think on what is true. I'm going to think on what is worthy of worship. I'm going to think about uh, you know, what is absolutely consistent with the holiness of God. And fourthly, whatever is pure meaning morally clean, undefiled. Whatever is morally clean, morally uh, pure, I want to think on that, not that other garbage. And we're talking about spiritual stability here. Fifthly, he says, whatever is lovely. It means pleasing or attractive, winsome. It's one of those words that we only find here in the New Testament. It's an unusual word. It means whatever is sweet or, or gracious or generous patient. It can have a whole, whole bunch of different facets to it, this word. But whatever is attractive and lovely, it's kind of the idea. Sixth thing there, he says, whatever is of good repute, which means well thought of, being held in high regard. That's where we want to put our thoughts. 
And you know where, where that, that keeps us? That keeps us really confined to God's word. Because everything in this world is trash. doesn't matter whether you pick up a magazine, whether you turn on the TV, whether you go to the theater, whatever it is. It's going to influence the way you think somehow. And more than likely, probably 95% of the time, it's not going to be in a way that would honor God. That's just the way it is. That's the world in which we live in. See, and so the point is, what, what Paul is trying to get across to us here is that we have to protect our mind. Because it's really what determines what you want and what desires you're going to have and all that other stuff. And then he says there, if there's anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. You can almost read that since there is excellence and since there is some things that are worthy of praise, focus on those things. See, our mind is the greatest treasure that we have. It influences how we act, how we think, what we say. Every aspect of our life is touched by our mind. And if we're not protecting it in an active way, we could be in big trouble. You must avoid the things that are influences in a negative way in our lives. I mean, there's no... You know, there's no secret little quick fix here. We all struggle with, with our thought life and with, with our minds every day. We're fallen. That's, that's who we are. But it doesn't mean that we don't need to, to improve on those areas. You, know, you can't bottle this up and say, here, just take this pill. And boy, you're, you'll just have you know, spiritual thinking until Christ comes back. It doesn't work that way. It has to be fleshed out. It's, it's, it's a product of, of being cultivated, and that's why I said it kind of sums up everything, that peace in the fellowship, maintaining that spirit of joy, learning to accept less than your due, resting that you're confident in the Lord, reacting to our problems with, with a thankful prayer, and focusing our thoughts on things that would be godly. All those things will help stabilize us. And what, what Paul is saying here in the end, and if you want to, uh, you know, kind of a example. Um, he says, look, if you want an example of all this, Paul says, look at me. In verse 9, he says, these things you've learned, you've received, you've heard, you've seen in me. I mean, it would be to God that we could all say that. I can't, with my own conscience, sit there and say, hey, look at me. I'm some, I can't say that. You'll not only find the peace of God in verse 7, you'll have the God of peace in verse 9. Paul says, you know what, I'll be your model, as Christ was my model. And he goes on from there. But it's not only the way you think, but then it fleshes it out every day, just living an obedient life, being obedient to the God that's called you, that saved you. He so, he so much wants us to have stability in our lives. I'm just going to close with reading these verses 1 to 9. We'll close with a prayer. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy, my crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. 
I implore Rhodey and I implore Syntech to be of the same mind in the Lord. I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. Be anxious. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, think on these things, meditate on these things. The things which you learned and received and heard and saw in me, these do. And the God of peace will be with you. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And Lord, I pray that we would truly guard our minds. Lord, there's not a person in this male, female, child, whatever, who doesn't deal with a thought life. Because that's how we were created. And yet, God, there's always room to grow. There's always room for improvement. And Lord, I pray that we would, if we truly desire stableness in our Christian walks, that we would learn how to apply these steps to our lives, which basically ends in being obedient to you. But Father, help us in our, in our thinking. Help us to learn how to think, to be discerning, not just be approving everything around us, Lord, I pray that our minds would be critical with the Word of God. That we would apply it as a filter to the things we see around us. That we'd be able to discern what is right and what is wrong. There's no gray area here. And Father, that as we make those calls, as we make those judgments on a daily basis, that you would bless us as a result of that. Lord, I pray for anyone here this morning who's battling their thought life, Lord, in ways that couldn't even understand, maybe. Lord, I pray that you would encourage their hearts. I pray that you would help them to realize that it doesn't have to be that way. Father, that you can overcome that. Lord, that you can allow them to be an overcomer through Christ. Father, even if they're a believer here this morning and they're dealing with issues in their thought life, I pray that they would realize that you're a gracious God. You call us to confess our sins. And when we do, you, you've already forgiven them. That's not why we confess them. We confess them just so that we acknowledge that we're doing wrong in your sight. And Lord, we thank you for that forgiveness. and It's, it's always there. And Lord, I pray that you would cleanse our mind through your word, that we would be faithful to to learn your word, to read it, to study it, to know it. It's not an easy task, but it's one that you've called us to as Christians. And I pray that we would 
do that diligently. And Lord, I also pray for parents here with children. Lord, I pray that they would take this so seriously. What, what goes into their small minds is going to have an impact. Lord, we may not think it does, but it does. Experts have told us that. And Father, I pray that if it's going to have an impact, I pray that it would have an impact for Christ. That it would be a positive impact. And so, Father, we do pray that you would guard their small hearts as well. Pray you dismiss us with your blessing here this morning. And we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.